Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. To wrap up a great year, we're featuring the top 10 most downloaded shows of the past year, and we've combined them to five-minute segments all in one show. We're going to start with our number one most downloaded show of 2019, and that features Greg Rose co-founder of TPI and OnBaseU. When I mentioned earlier that our philosophy is there's not one way to pitch or there's not one way to hit, but there's one efficient way for everybody to pitch or hit, and it's based on what they physically do. Mm-hmm. The key word there was efficient. I said, you know, I don't care what it looks like. I just care that it's efficient. And efficiency to me is you know where it's going, you can reproduce it, and you can maximize power with the least amount of effort. That's efficient. Now, I told you that we use 3D motion capture to measure efficiency. Now, a lot of people are like, well, how do you, how does a motion capture machine tell me if what I'm doing is efficient or not? Now, literally what, what it does is when we put these sensors on you and we reproduce your body on a computer and we go through, we can actually look at literally, like I always say, the analogy is like cracking a whip. I can see if you know how to crack the whip or if you don't really know how to crack the whip. Sure. And the way we do that is by looking at a graph. And there's one graph that literally there's been so much science and research over the last 20 years on this graph that really tells me how efficient you are at generating power and transferring power. And that graph from 3D motion capture is called the kinematic sequence graph, right? And that's where this comes from. So literally the first thing we ever do with a hitter or pitcher is we hook them up motion capture and we look at their kinematic sequence. Now the kinematic sequence is literally how a player creates power from the ground how that energy is created, how much they create it, and in what sequence they create it with which body parts, and then how they transfer that through their body. And if you look at the best hitters or the best pitchers in the world, let's talk about hitters first. If you look at the best hitters, they're going to start energy from the ground. So their mm-hmm. feet are going to create this rotary power. It's going to transfer up to their pelvis. Their pelvis is going to start to go first. Then they're going to transfer the energy to their trunk, their rib cage. Then they're going to transfer to their arms and then to the bat and into the ball. It's going to be from the ground right to the bat to the ball. What's funny is, is you think, well, everybody does that. That's not true. If you look at, like, in Little League, you'll see some kids, the, let's say the lower body starts, and then all of a sudden here comes the bat, and then here comes the, lower, the arm, and then here comes the trunk, and it's like the energy crashes in the middle. Right. But we can actually measure that now with, with this motion capture. And, and that's the same thing we can do with pitching, same thing with hitting, and that's why you're hearing this kinematic sequence, something that's completely taken over the golf instruction world is now bleeding into the baseball world because it's like cheating for a coach. It's like I can tell you exactly where your problem is and I know where to focus. That's what the kinematic sequence does. That's, that's something that, again, it's been talked about for a long time, but I think that it's, it's, again, you said it's catching fire now because there's actually ways to measure it and use data to actually you know, show oh, yeah. what's, what's going on. Uh, I'll tell you why I think, like, I've always said, I think two sports are just so much farther ahead from technology standpoint. I always say it's like Formula One and golf. Mm-hmm. And I just because I've seen, you know, some of the Formula One teams and obviously some of the stuff we do with golf. And I think, uh, I think it's because if you look at 
baseball and you look at basketball and you look at football, most of those sports are run by owners. Owners pretty much run these leagues. They, they buy the players, they do stuff, and they spend a lot of their money on players. I don't want to say they, they don't spend a lot of money on R&D or on development, but some are better than others. It's not their primary focus. Their primary focus is, is buying players. If you go to golf for Formula One, it is not run by owners. It's run by manufacturers. The manufacturers spend tons and tons of money on research and develop to, on development to develop the latest products. So we had like, you know, we have incredible budgets here at Titleist to analyze and study our players, right? To try and develop the best equipment. And that's what gave, given us a lot of toys like the Trackmans and things like that, that, uh, we've been spoiled with for years. And now I think, you know, in the world of professional sports with baseball and basketball and football, they're starting to go, Hey, I think, uh, all this technology that's been out there and been developed, I think we can use this to help develop our players as well. And it's, it's just, it's going like a tidal wave through baseball right now, which is great. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's a couple of things that, that I always tell our kids and, and we're limited on what we can measure because we're, you know, we don't have a track man and, you know, we, we've only got so many number crunchers on, on our staff. So one thing I always tell them is, is we're going to measure what we treasure and we're going to measure for motivation. So you can see, and with Absolutely. all this different stuff that, that we've got now is you can physically or you can you can see yourself improving or digressing. And we're going to take a couple of things that we truly think are going to help you become a better baseball player and to yeah. help our team win. I'll add, I'll add one more. I'll add one more to your list. Why? Why guess if you can assess? Right. right? Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's just like if you want a kid to be committed and all in, prove it. Mm-hmm. So listen, here's the data. It's not my opinion. Here it is. Right. And I think. In golf, and you know, another difference in golf and baseball is, is our players. If, if there's no contract, they don't have a contract. If they don't play well this week, they don't get paid, right? And when you're working on them, it's kind of like, uh, hey, I want to make sure I'm working on the right thing. And of course, every baseball player wants the same thing. And I think a lot of times for us in the development world, you know, we can show a player facts, stats, and go, listen, here's what the data says on your hip versus other people's hip. And here's this, it, it makes the player comfortable that they're working on the right thing. And like you said, they can compare themselves to two years ago to now and see if we're going in the right direction. Next up, here is Steve Johnson, founder and CEO of Leg Kick Nation. Yeah, because I've had people ask me how you do the membership model, how you how you've been able to grow, you know, kind of and get people to buy in and not have that quick fix. And really, I think it's, it's selling on the kids and the parents on the transformational process of the system. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we're, we're not selling a better baseball player. What we're trying to sell, you know, is a, is a vision of a better you. How are we going to make you the best you you can possibly be? So if, if we can do that and we can sell, sell people on this, I'll say, overarching, you know, vision of being a better person, not just a baseball player, but being a better person, being part of a community that is bigger than, you know, just baseball. I think most people are going to, well, most people that I've spoken with, you know, they, they genuinely want to buy in because, because again, I think most people want to be part of something bigger, you know, than just the sport of baseball. I think most people want to be part of a community in which, you know, you're, you're like-minded, uh, you know, student athletes um, with caring instructors that, that are, you know, there for your best interest. So, I mean, that was pretty much, you know, kind of how 
how I started it. I started it with that mission statement. You know, we're going to create mindful, innovative learners. I mean, mm-hmm. what does that have to do with baseball? What does that have to do with baseball? There's not baseball. You're right. That's what I mean. The baseball is not even in baseball is not even in our mission statement. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create better, you know, learners, better problem solvers, and a byproduct of that is, you know, we've been able to create monsters. You know, and and and. It's not us, it's the culture and the, the system that we put into place. And it's the kids that are working and believing in it, um, they're, begin, they're, they're, they're solving problems. And, you know, I think a lot of them are doing better in school. I think a lot of them are achieving goals that um, they maybe would not have achieved. And I know for a fact, a lot of them, you know, are, like I said about transformational, they're transforming into people that I don't even think that they thought they would become, including myself. Again, mm-hmm. like I said, I mean, I'm not, I'm not above you know, any of these kids and I'm not above the business. I mean, I'm part of it. And so I have struggles. I, you know, I have problems, I have faults and all of this process, the system has helped me become a, a better me. And I think when you sell parents on that and you truly believe it, you know, when you truly believe that what we're going to do is, is truly help your son or daughter become the best version of, of them. They, they start to buy in. And then when you provide results, I mean, you know, help. That's really when, when, you know, things start kicking in. I've surrounded myself with people that are a lot smarter than me um, as business partners that, you know, know a lot about movement, know a lot about the physiology of our student athletes and, you know, can, can help, um, you know, them problem solve and, 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 and move better. But like I said, it's, it's a culture. We have nutrition classes, you know, we have, we have classes outside of baseball that, that kids go to. So um, it's become a, a cool little, little environment. And I think if you can create that environment for people, they'll come. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of jumping in. And, and one of the things that a lot of people um, I talked to that, you know, said that they're going to try to do is, you know, kind of, we're going to have lessons over here, but then we're also going to have a membership model. And, and to me, I mean, you're contradicting yourself, you know? Do you want to be the lesson guy that is the teacher king, or do you want to have the membership model where it's a community? So if you're going to jump all in, I mean, you got to jump all in. And to steal an economic phrase, I mean, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You know, you're either, you're, you're, either, you're either pregnant or you're not. You're either running membership community where kids can come every single day and, and become monsters and get after it, mm-hmm. or you're going to do lessons. And this isn't to demonize lessons. I know, you know, I, I know a lot of good people that do lessons, but... I do think that the system that we have created is a successful model and it can be replicated. The biggest thing for me is, is you know, I, I think the one thing that a teacher can bring to the table and the art form behind teaching is kind of knowing when to address something and knowing when to, you know, pull off the gas a little bit. That's really good. So, you know, I always, I always try to figure when do I say something to this kid and when don't I? In the very beginning, I was all the time. See a mistake, fix a mistake. See if, you know, see if, and now the more, you know, times that I've held my talk, so the less I've talked, the greater the results. And that just shows you that I'm probably not the best, you know, teacher in the world, which is, which is awesome to see. So, you know, I think when a kid comes in, I like to, I like to let them kind of flow a little bit. You know, I like to see how they like to, to, to train. I like to see how they, they, they think about it. You know, when they, okay, here here are the T drills that you're going to do today. Here are the front toss drills you're going to do today. Here are the the, uh, the BP drills. Or and again, we can get into the entire system that we have and the flow days and whatnot. 
But I, I like to see, well, how do they set the ball up on the tee? How do they set up on the tee? How do they approach other kids? So, for example, we had a 13-year-old kid come in. When we, one of the first days we were open, and we had two Division One hitters, you know, in the facility just crushed in, in, in the, one, the one section. And this kid is just standing by himself because he's nervous and doesn't want to go over to those kids. And I'm like, well, you know, this is going to be awkward because he's going to sit there for a while because those kids are not going to go up to him and tell him to jump in and start hitting with him. So his mom came in. And he's like, well, are you going to say anything to him? I'm like, well, not really, because I want to see what he does. You know, if I just go over there and tell the kid, hey, why don't you jump in with them? You know, then I literally just took away an opportunity for this kid to learn something. Maybe, you know? Sure. So I was like, well, let's see where this goes. So me and the mom were just watching them, and I'm like, oh, that's getting awkward. You know, as the minutes go by, and the mom was like, what is going on? Uh, well, the kid, went and got, the kid went and got a bucket of wall and went up to the, these, you know, these, very good baseball players. So it was like, hey, man, you know, I got all these balls. You mind, you mind if I jump in? And, and the kids, they were like, yeah, dude, come on in. And what amazed me, I was like, wow, look at this kid, man. He brought something to the table. You know, he went and got a bucket of balls, went to the cage and said, man, let me jump in with you guys. Because he knew he had to bring something. Right. So, you know, that, that in and of itself, you're like, well, that shows me that, you know, this kid can kind of figure things out. And then you have other kids that, you know, maybe need a little bit more direction. So in terms of, that plot as applicable to their movements and their swings and whatnot. So some of the kids, they need me to, 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 you know, kind of help them out. I'm videoing every swing. We're going over every swing. And then there's some kids that just need to flow and just, you know, you know, Stevie, just shut up for 15 minutes, you know, get the hell away from them. And that's sort of the art form, I guess, that, you know, all of our instructors are, are trying to, you know, master is when do you say something? When do you not say something? When is something becoming an issue? When is something not an issue? And, you know, are you the proper outlet for that kid? Here is Tanner Swanson, Major League Catching and Quality Control Coach for the New York Yankees. Doing a strike at any time is great, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's not a single count in baseball that favors the hitter with the addition of a strike. You sure. know, and I don't think there's, there's a harder time to hit in our game than today. Mm -hmm. Velocity is, it continues to, to rise movement quality, pitch usage, um, you know, there's a, a lot of advances on the pitching side that, you know, continue to make hitting harder and harder and harder. All right. So anytime we can add a strike, you know, significantly helps our pitching staff, our ability to, to limit runs, you know, optimize strikeouts, et cetera. So, um, but, but anyway, stealing an OO strike is, is great, right? But a hitter can still, you know, hit a home run, but, a pitch later, two pitches later, right? Mm -hmm. steal, when you steal a strike with two strikes, it ends the at bat, right? The, the, the run expectancy is zero. And that's, I think the best outcome in baseball is, is the strikeout. And so one thing I've struggled with is that, you know, catchers getting these really good positions, let's just say with nobody on base mm -hmm. and, um, and they're doing a really good job capturing the strike zone. And now all of a sudden we get the two strikes and, and we do something, the complete opposite. You know, mm -hmm. we get up in this big drastic block stance and, and now we can't finish in at bat and we let a hitter maybe creep into it, back into it. And so uh, my, my long answer would be, it depends, you know, um, mm -hmm. I, I think if, if receiving is the, is the most important thing, then trying to end in at bat on this pitch with two strikes, you know, you should get into whatever position allows you to do so um, the best. And gotcha. if that's one knee, that's one knee. If it's some other position, it's some other position. If you think it's a big secondary active position, um, then, you know, so be it. But I think 
I would caution players to, to leave their most optimal receiving stance just because, you know, we get the two strikes. I think, um, you know, there's, there's obviously other factors at play, you know, what's the inning, what's the score, are, you know, are there runners, um, you know, how critical is this block? What's the, the likelihood that this ball is in the dirt? Um, how much trust and field is, or do I have them with the guy on the mound? So it's with none of this stuff, I think it's, it's never black and white and there's a, a ton of variables that need to be considered. But in general, I would say just because we get the two strikes doesn't mean the approach should change, you know, drastically. It's pretty tough to dispute. Um, and I feel comfortable sharing this because it's, it, it's, it's really tough to dispute that, you know, the best guys in the game are, are moving the baseball. They're egregiously manipulating the ball back to the strike zone. Um, and that's not just the Minnesota twins. That's really across the industry. If you, if you, if you're paying any attention to, you know, what some of the more elite pitch framers are doing in, in our game today, you look at the Tyler flowers or the Max Stassi's or, uh, Yasmani Grandal's or Austin Barnes or like there's those guys are they're manipulating the ball and I think that's changed the most over the last five or so years you know when I first started coaching catchers you know it was present the pitch where it's pitched you know stick it hold it you know there there wasn't a lot of teach in terms of trying to move balls back to the strike zone and and the more and more I watch you know some of the more elite guys you know, that's, it's really challenged my perspective that, you know, moving the ball is, is effective and mm-hmm. um, whether umpires like it or not, whether old school coach, you know, catching guys like it or not, like it's, it's guys are being rewarded for it. And I think at the end of the day, um, catchers are being evaluated largely on their ability to create strikes. And if, if this method um, allows catchers to do so at a higher rate than those that don't, then, you know, that's good enough for me. And, and so I think manipulating the ball is, is the biggest difference um, so far. I think uh, another piece is, is really understanding what the movement quality is or the movement qualities of, of the guy you're, you're catching, right? Is he, a, is he a sinker ball guy? Is he a sinker ball slider guy? Or is he more of a four-seam carry guy that pitches kind of at the, more at the top of the strike zone? Um, is he kind of just an average across the board and, and really relies on, you know, mixing all his pitches. So I think understanding your pitcher's mix and, and what are his, his pitch qualities um, will help from a targeting standpoint um, because catchers don't cover the entire strike zone mm-hmm. the same, right? Just like a hitter doesn't cover the entire strike zone. If you look at catcher heat maps, guys that are good down, you know, generally struggle up. Um, guys that struggle up or, um, are good down and same thing in and out. So, um, you have to, I think, pick, you know, which parts of the strike zone you want to best try to optimize. And maybe at the amateur levels, it's, it's pretty general, you know, and maybe you don't slice it, um, in that much detail. Um, but I think in general, the key to the strike zone is down, um, being able to, to dominate the bottom of the strike zone, I think is, is critical generally all of the best guys in the game are really good down. They they're really good in the bottom third of the strike zone. Um, and I think for a variety of reasons, one being there's just more pitches taken in that region than any other part of the zone. Um, you're also seeing a trend in, in breaking ball usage, you know, in, in a lot of cases in, the, in at the major league level, teams are throwing more breaking balls than fastballs, you know, so you're seeing fastball velocity rise 
um, but you're seeing fastball usage decline, you know, generally across the game. Um, and, and breaking balls, you know, we throw breaking balls to the bottom of the strike zone. We don't throw breaking balls to the top third um, intentionally. So um, there's just more opportunities at the bottom of the strike zone. And if I'm an amateur coach working with amateur players, you know, getting guys to really hone in on how do we capture the bottom of the zone would be, um, I think, a really good place to start. Here is Cage Work with Doug Latta and Craig Hyatt, episode number one. Some of the things we look at is we love the idea of space, and we talk to hit about carrying space. So we have a little bit of space behind us, and a lot of people think we need a lot of space to hit. Right. And we don't. Here, I don't like any move that's outside of balance, and the balance exists really between my feet. I find hitters can adjust and, and react to a bad move, but it's going to cost them in the long run and is a flaw. And some hitters are great enough to survive flaws. Well, 99.9% of people aren't going to. But if we can keep our balance and stay in a good position, we can keep that space. So we talk about making space. And everybody's space is a little different. Somebody's going to feel space out here. I like my hands out a little bit. Uh-huh. And some are going to keep their hands in. Some are going to have a, a bend in their posture. And some are going to be more upright. It depends on their body and how their feel is. The one thing that we talk about in posture, because posture breaks at first move are often problematic. And that's where a hitter will make a body move, break posture. Mm -hmm. And posture break can be directional, but it can also be when we release the backside and lose it into a frontside move. So we consider that part of the posture break. We can isolate down and talk about which one, but for the for a posture break, what I talk about is setting the hips. So we find what's comfortable on the hitter's feet, where he wants to be, and then we'll actually shift the hips. The martial arts people understand is sitting the horse. We call it sitting in the seat. So we kind of cup our pelvis oh, yeah. underneath us and then set our posture into that because that carries our balance better. And that allows us to at least hold together better. I definitely feel when our posture breaks. Yeah. And even people tell me, we can't teach this stuff to young kids. That's not true. They can start learning and moving just the same way as an adult body. Maybe they don't have the adult strength, but the bodies move the same. But understanding carrying and holding posture and being able to float, that can be trained too. But obviously our move to 50-50 is a lot easier if I'm in balance and my posture holds, the minute my posture breaks a little bit, lots of things go wrong. Not only if I'm fighting for position, I might be cutting myself off. Other things that people don't think about happen. We were talking earlier about the brain and balance and seeing right. the ball. We talked about, we all know, or most of us know, that when I make a move 50-50, I see the ball better. And virtually every hitter I've ever worked with major leagues down, makes that move 50-50 on time, and they say, I see the ball better. That's been your experience, too. Yeah, definitely. And when they say, I'm looking I'm looking to hear, I see it better, everything's easier, everything's cleaner, and it's all interrelated to that balance. And, and Yeah, and I look at vision and timing, which are kind of intangibles, but they're tied to the same physicality of our move. So I kind of like lump some of it all together. But the interesting thing we talked about is, the, the move to balance and maintaining balance has to involve keeping that brain 
in a happy position. And it's a happy position. The minute the brain's off balance, it will start firing muscles mm-hmm. because it thinks it's going to fall. I can't control that. The minute I take my brain out of balance, it starts firing muscles. So if my brain moves out of balance at any point, it's going to fire muscles against what I'm trying to do. It's going to limit my overall efficiency of a move because muscles are going to be firing in a different direction too. But importantly, the other thing happens is that means my brain's distracted and panicking. It thinks it's going to fall over. And no matter what I tell it, it's going to panic. It's just built in. So that also inhibits ability to see the ball, and it speeds up the game too. And as we talked about moves of balance all, all predicated on, that also puts my head in a better position that I can go. You see a lot of our hitters now, we get hitters a little bit off center, they're not square, because when I'm square, I also have upper body shifts to accommodate. When I'm open, the good thing is I can set my head, both eyes on the ball comfortably, set my posture, and by opening, I can take my right, my front shoulder, my lead shoulder, kind of out of the equation a little bit, because when it engages, it creates other issues. But again, then I can set my posture, use my backside to carry that to a good hitting position. So simple. You and I both know it's not, but it can be worked on. And it gets easier and easier and easier. And it's interesting over a course of, depending on your schedule and the level that you play at, everyone goes through periods of seeing the ball and not seeing the ball. And those times that you're not seeing the ball, what is the little move change that you're making? And you probably don't even know it, but any little out-of-balance move throws off the vision just like you're talking. So if you can create a hitter that has total body awareness, they know what move and what muscles are going to get them to that spot, you can create consistency over a long period of time. Next, we have Max Weiner minor league pitching coordinator for the Seattle Mariners. So I think that there are like two prongs to that, the physical and the mental side, and then just from the physical side. Sure. Say that there's a pitcher who we want to, we say, man, like this guy's got something very, very special in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. How are we going to go about making sure that this guy's slider, which is a very unique slider and very special, actually plays well in the game? Because it's passing the eye test, the process-based metrics, right? Like the spin-induced movement is really solid. Everything's in a good spot. How come in the game it's not working out? Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, you can look at some of the numbers and dig in. This is where paying attention to the right metrics and ignoring, or even just paying attention but, but discounting others is really important. Well, if you were going to dig deeper and say you had a rap soda, or say you were just had a random Joe Schmo pitcher behind the net for inner squads, just marking down slider behind the, you know, on the bouncing at the back of the plate or way off glove side. And you just mark swings and misses based off of that. You'd probably be in a pretty good spot to know, Hey, you actually have an awesome slider. Mm -hmm. You just need to stop yanking it glove side and go back of the plate. And that would be a very, let's say cost aware way of going about that. But say you had access to TrackMan, say you had access to Rapsodo and really good video, you could do a lot of really, really special things and tell this guy exactly what's going on. Hey, you know when you try to go glove side with the ball, you're actually affecting the axis of the pitch, and it's moving totally differently. So your really special pitch, just because of your mindset to get it off the plate, you're doing yourself a gigantic disservice. And you start to say, okay, like this is blending it pretty well. And I think with young people who grew up with all this already in place, 
people who grew up with video games, who threw up with, who grew up knowing exactly what these conversations are about. I think it just makes it easier. So just knowing how these people learn and how these people take in information and just sort of offering it with the same sort of medium is the best way to go about it. Now, the technology is huge and that's coupled with the data because you obviously need that to collect it. Mm-hmm. But here's a, here's a good one. If you have a guy, a pitcher who has a awesome sinker, when you're watching a bullpen and you're standing in the back and you see it go down and it pops right at the knees and it's way low and there's a ton of movement going down, you may want to say, man, cosmetically, that looks awesome. That pitch is great. The more movement, the better. And in a vacuum, it very well may be. The unique thing is, is what we can do with a lot of this info is if you have the rap soto, if you have the track man, if you can do these sort of things, what you can do is say, all right, within your total repertoire, how your pitch plays out based on what the batter is doing, such as his exit below against certain pitches, maybe the pitch that looks bigger, that looks better, looks like it has more movement, meaning the sinker down at the knees, may not be as good as a sinker that's a little bit more elevated. Perhaps it plays off the slider better. Perhaps it tunnels, which is a whole other debate. But there's a whole lot of, uh, let's say, leeway, and there's a whole lot of discussion to be had within that. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is sort of understand what batters do with general trends against it. And I think that's pretty helpful because if you're going to go through a bullpen and want to be able to track what's going on and prepare for games, as a coach, you can almost be a broker or a day trader and understand what it's like to notice trends and patterns and say, hey, we're moving in this direction. It may look and feel better, but in actuality, that's not really the case, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times, if something makes sense or is logical, you need to step back and say, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's too easy to believe. Why is this actually happening? And just so we know here, I'm not advocating for less movement to tunnel. I mean, more so than anything, the most predictive form of getting somebody out is less reaction time, meaning more velocity and a larger threshold to miss the bat, meaning more movement. Mm -hmm. So when in doubt, more movement, more velo for sure. But when you get into pitches like sliders and changeups, it gets very, very different, especially with splitters. So knowing what that's like is tough. And if you wanted to talk more about it, just FYI, any listener, please reach out to me. It's just, it'd be tough to dig in. That's like a two hour conversation to have on this. And I don't want to get lost on that, but (laughs) here's an interesting one. I got one for you here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk so much about focus, right? Everyone's got to have like lockdown process for every single pitch. The, and we know how important the mental game is. This is a, um, I just want to assert one potential option to be able to help guys sort of quantify their focus and buy buy-in. Now we have on Robert Woodard, former University of North Carolina pitching coach and now head coach for the University of Charlotte. We just really trust our players and we instill a lot of, and what that means is when we instill trust in our players, you know, we give them a lot of leeway in terms of policing themselves and maintaining our team's standards and maintaining that culture. The leader, the leadership, it's, I mean, it certainly starts with us and our coaching staff in terms of 
um, our direction and the things that we do and things that we say and how we carry ourselves. But ultimately, the, um, trusting our players and recruiting the right players, you know, the guys that are capable of, of thriving in this culture um, is important. And we're very upfront with, with recruits on the front end that come in here and visit here, just in terms of, you know, you've, you've got to, it takes a person of, of high character to thrive here. You've got to love competition. Um, you've got to be confident. Um, you know, you've got to have all these things to be successful here. So we try to really identify those things on the front end and recruit as much of those things on the front end to where once they're here, we trust them to, you know, to have those things and then certainly develop them. Certainly things like time management are important for, for most kids uh, coming up to the college level, mom, dad, their caretakers, whoever it may be coaches, they're, you know, they're, they take them to and from places. They kind of dictate their entire schedules, you know, when they're coming and going places and even, you know, what, what they are and aren't eating. Um, so, just players taking on more responsibility for themselves, kind of having developing a sense of independence. And then, like I mentioned, time management, the more a player can be developed in kind of those aspects, I think a player will be more prepared to come to, you know, any, anywhere in any baseball program in general throughout the country, I think at, at the next level, just because it's just, it's that important. So I think that's, that's one thing. I think in general too, a lot of, a lot of guys haven't really learned to fail. Most players when they, by the time they get to the next level, if, you know, if, if high school is a level and then college, whether it's division one, two, three, NAIA or JUCO, et cetera. I mean, whenever a player gets to another level, they've, they've been recruited to that level and they've been recruited to that level because they've likely had some level of success. So I think players that, um, that look at failure as an opportunity to grow. Um, and they look at challenges that are, are another option or opportunity to grow and are open to trying, you know, new things as opposed to just getting somewhere and being stuck in what they know. Uh, I think these, I think these are the types of things from a mindset standpoint, that guys that I see that are the most successful have the ability to do. So because you because every player is going to fail, or, or be challenged um, at some point in their career, if not the high school level, certainly the college level and beyond. And you have to, you have to be equipped to, uh, to handle it sure. and embrace it. Talk to us about something that is really interesting that I really, sure. really like that you guys do, and that's messing with timing. So essentially, I look at every pitcher as, has checkpoints in his delivery. I call those checkpoints one, two, three, four, or five, or A, B, C, D, and E. And, you know, if, if checkpoint A is taking the, is how you dress the rubber, taking the sign, checkpoint B is your rocker step and pivot. And then checkpoint C is your leg lift and balance. And then checkpoint D is hand separation and, you know, driving towards the plate. E is extension and follow through, whichever terminology you want to use for those checkpoints is fine. But that's kind of how, when I, when I, when I start to teach a pitcher, you know, to disrupt timing of, that's kind of where I begin is, is having each pitcher understand where their checkpoints are on the delivery. Now their normal delivery, their natural delivery that they're comfortable with that they, you know, they're doing on a daily basis, you know, and then we kind of go from there 
in terms of identifying pitchers that we do or don't teach timing with, I try to teach the concepts to each pitcher, mm-hmm. have them understand it. And then honestly kind of watch and see how they handle it. Some guys will surprise you. Some guys you think that aren't ready for it are actually incredibly ready for it. And then some guys that you think this will come really neat, natural and easy to them. Um, it doesn't. So I try to teach it to each guy. And then as a pitching coach, you know, I know what each guy on a daily basis, you know, looks like and how he moves and that sort of thing. So if I like the direction that it's going, then continue to allow it. If I, if I feel like it's getting in the way of them in any, any capacity, then certainly as a coach, I would kind of interject. So, but I try to, I try to teach the concepts because even if guys don't physically, you know, alter their delivery or tempo, there's still lessons to be learned in terms of why you would do it and, you know, why it could help you with, you know, understanding what the hitter is trying to do and what the hitter looks like when he's on time and what the hitter looks like when he's not on time and why that's important. Up next is Rob Benjamin, minor league hitting coach for the Seattle Mariners. And it's something that I'm really obsessive about is the launch. The launch, whether uh, you have quickness to get your barrel going and also the efficiency of the launch. Those two components are extremely important to me. And I feel that a lot of players lack in that area. Usually they're losing their barrel mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or pushing, whatever the case may be. Maybe they're, they're sliding a little early, especially with young guys. They will have a tendency to get that back elbow going through, right? They've always been mm-hmm. told you got to slot the elbow. So what happens? It creates an efficient barrel turn. So that's, So I'll focus on that. I'll focus on the launch. And then at the end, I'll focus on their deceleration. I want to see because if if their bodies can't decelerate properly, that it's actually starting before. They're not going to accelerate if their bodies is not allowing it to decelerate. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, tell us about what you guys are doing in in the offseason. And I know that we're right in the middle of, of the season right now in most parts of the world or at least parts of the United States. And, but let's, let's reverse revert a little bit back to August or September and walk us through what you would do differently then. And what are, what are some of your main goals that you're trying to accomplish whenever you're not playing games every day? Well, my main goal is to make sure that, you know, I, I can help the players create a, better motor control, better movements, be able to, to enable them to facilitate them in, in, a, in an unpredictable environment. And it's very difficult in, in the cage setting. You know, I understand mm-hmm. how difficult it might be to create that or to, to create that environment that's representative of the field. You know, so I, I try to, to help them create better solutions in the batter's box by uh, basically just, just trying to make it as realistic as possible to that game environment or, you know, that unpredictability. So do you mind, you know, walking, walking us through a little, maybe some practical examples of that? Absolutely. So, okay. So today I was working with a player, pretty good swing pattern. You know, he, he, he likes to talk a little smack, you know, he's very confident. Mm -hmm. So I, what I like to do with, you know, in that situation, you know, I'll 
maybe I'll talk to the dad on the side and I'll say, look, let's try to make this as realistic as possible. I'm going to create uh, a difficult environment. I want him to adapt. So not only am I going to be throwing batting practice, you know, location, different locations, varying velocity, curveball, fastballs, but I also want you to chirp at him. I want you to create, you know, a situation where he's uncomfortable. You know, maybe you're telling him to, you know, keep his hands up or to, you know, whatever, you know, usually whatever parents might say in a game setting. Mm-hmm. I'm tell, I tell a dad, like, I want you to do this. Let's recreate it, right? Let's, let's try to create some noise around him and let's watch him adapt. Okay. Right? I want to see these players adapt. I really like that a lot. And that's something that, that I've actually, we're in the middle of end season right now too. And so we'll go live at bats and I usually during BP or during batting practice or the batting segment of our practices, we play music. But on the days that we do live ABs, I go to Spotify and I've created a, a playlist of just crowd, crowds yelling and crowd like noises and clapping and screaming. And, and that's a lot of fun. The first day that, that I did that, they all looked at me like I was a little bit crazy, but that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the environment that we're going to be in if we're playing as long as we want to and playing against better teams. And if they get used to that and they can tone that out and, and get into flow state, then uh, they're going to be all right. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's important that they're willing to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, uh, especially if you know, you're in your season and you're going into hostile territory, you're going into your rival school, mm-hmm. you know, in the playoffs in districts, you know, it can be very difficult. So you have to find ways to uh, recreate that environment and in the practice setting, whatever it might be, whether it's music, whether it's the guys talking to each other, you know, whether it's uh, you as the coaching instructor, uh, sometimes I'll trash talk, I'll, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a back and forth there. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get into the player's head. I'm trying to figure out, all right, how I'm going to get you out of, out of your zone, out of that flow. How can I get you out of it? You know, and if I, or if I see that he is consistently barreling up balls, okay, maybe this challenge is not difficult enough. Maybe I need to do something to, to knock him out of that flow state and let's see if he can find it again. You know? And so basically I'm, you know, I, I try to do, less talking as much as possible, you know, unless I absolutely, absolutely have to, or taking a word from, uh, from Steve Johnson of recognition, being a teacher King, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want the environment to do it for me, the task, the constraints. Here is Chan Brown, head baseball coach at Parkview high school. The culture thing for us starts at, uh, age six, to be honest okay. with you. Uh, I have a, tra- I have a travel program called Meridian Panthers. Perfect. Uh, last year's senior class was with us for 10 years. So it's a thing that, you know, I don't do a travel program in high school because of this, but we do eight, an age six and seven developmental league. And so that means they play rec league for three, three weeks. And then every third week in the entire league's off besides that travel team hmm. for six, seven U. And then our eight and through 14 U is, um, it's strictly major travel. And so, but the thing, the cool thing about that is myself, one of my infield coaches, Dustin Klein, and one of my, uh, my head JV coach, Mark Lowry, we, we do a 12 week session deal in the fall. And so we do six weeks of defense with the kids at Parkview. And then we take a week off and then we do six weeks of offense with them. And so 
they're, they know our coaching staff. They know our facility. They know the expectation. They see all the signage. They see all the rings, everything, you know, from age six on. And so the culture is kind of built from, from that point on. You know, and and it's a really cool thing to to watch, and and those kids coming, um, you know, those kids coming up, watching, and wanting to be that guy. You know, last year, uh, Logan Cerny, he's at Troy now. He was real big for us. Hit uh, seven home runs in the playoffs, and the cool thing about it, after state championship, seeing seven to eight little kids that are eight, nine, ten years old, mm-hmm. looking up to him, wanting to take a picture with him, and and that's what they want to be. And so, you know, I think that's a drive for us in our community. So. It's been a cool uh, experience for for myself to be able to develop that program, and and then it leads into ours. That is really really cool. I don't I don't I don't know how else to put that. And and you're really training them with your standards and your culture from that early of an age. And so basically, once they get there, hey, it, they they know what's go. It's just go time. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and I mean, honestly, you know, I used to be a football coach too, and mm-hmm. uh, I honestly kind of looked at the model that old school Valdosta High School was the they won state championship after state championship, but and they they did that from the same sentence. They they ran the same offense as, as little league teams started. You know, at age six, and by the time they got to high school, you know, it's um, they get it and they understand what's supposed to happen, and mm-hmm. and so I kind of took that mentality and you know and I and uh, kind of ran with it. No, that's that's how you develop sustained success or sustained excellence, I guess, if if you want to call it. And that's something, man. That's that's really cool. I don't know why more more programs don't do that. It's very very time consuming. You know, I have I'm lucky. I have a ten uh, year old son and, and a thirteen year old son. They're involved in that program right now. And and the cool thing about it is teaching. Uh, so from six U to ten U, it's dads coaching, and mm-hmm. so they we we make them come out to all these sessions. So they're learning just as much as the kids do. And so they're when they go to practice, we're asking them to do everything we do uh, age appropriate, you know. Sure. And then uh, once they hit 11, 12, 13, 14, it's all paid coaches that they understand our program and, and so and understand our expectation. And, and so, you know, it's a great process for us. Uh, another thing that, that we really don't get to see much in other programs, and that's that's really their rules and their standards and, and how they I don't want to, I guess enforce is a uh, is a maybe a, a little bit of a harsh term but let's just say how they teach their young men how to abide by the rules and the standards of the program so uh what's that for you guys well you know and i'll go back to the pro- the, the travel program they hear the same thing but you know the high schoolers they're gonna they're all gonna hear the same thing we have some a lot of signage around our our uh, dugout our okay. locker room and you know the biggest biggest term they're gonna hear every single day is do the right thing all the time and that's on the field off the field no matter if you're at your house or, or at a skating rink or at a movie theater, you know, if you're representing, uh, you got to represent your family first and then park you baseball and, and do make sure you're doing that in the right way uh, all the time. And, you know, and I mean, we talk about uh, in order, you know, it's about God, it's about family, it's about our you know school and it's about our baseball and, and those that order, it's about being a student too. And when I mentioned that school part, you'll see a sign in our dugout. If you come, it talks about, in order, in this order, be a great person, be a great student, be a great teammate, and that leads to being a great player. Mm, and good. so, you know that that's a huge thing for us there. You know, each year I do a senior dinner um, at my house. I cook every senior, every coach a steak and baked potato salad, and we have a great meal together. And then we go in my basement, and that's when that senior class is able to tell us what their motto is for that year. And this year's motto came from a little bit of last year, but this year's senior motto is 
be the roar. And that came from uh, the old Miss coach. He, he did a little thing before, like he does every game, talked to his thing about how uh, the Lions, uh, when, they, when they're hungry, they go after, after the gazelles. And so what they do is put the young, youngest uh, and the loudest uh, lion, and they go in the front of the gazelles. And when he roars, the gazelles run the other way, and all the, the, lead, the leaders of the lions and the older ones and the wiser ones are in the, in the back. And so the gazelles run, it, run in straight into them, and then all the lions feast. And so uh, that's a huge thing that our kids loved it last year and this junior i mean as juniors they they said that's what they wanted their motto oh, that's and that's cool. what they came back to and, you know something that, that i'm doing this year we i, I kind of i'm a clemson guy i really like following Dabo, but you know this year his word was joy i, I kind of bought into that so this year is going to sound corny uh to some people but our kids are already buying into it but we we our words can be love and but we're going to have a three three worded head per se and the first one's gonna be love the second one's gonna be loyalty and the third one's gonna be leader leadership and and what why the way i explained it was if everybody in our in our program loves each other then they're going to be loyal to each other and then when that guy's trying to be a leader of them then it's all going to come together so that that's really working well for us already this year but um you know those are some things that uh that we do next up we have andrew wright former head baseball coach at the University of Charleston, and now works in player development for the New York Yankees. And I think that before you talk about culture, you've got to, you've got to establish that line of expectations uh, where this is what it's going to look like. Because uh, I think I talked about it in my, uh, my presentation in Dallas, is that when we are coaching people, we, we have already established this informal so- social contract of what it's going to look like. And it's our job to make sure that we stay above that line. So if you're looking for the answer of, you know, do we go on camping trips or do we go bowling? Like that's not the sort of stuff that we do. I think uh, I think people would be very underwhelmed to know what our process is to build the the environment that we've built. But what we expect uh, with us and for us is just that we want to be candid with each other and we want to be vulnerable and and we really want to be real with each other because I think that's one thing that as a young coach I did not do. And I think it really translated into the environment that we created uh, early in my coaching career because I was two different people. I was a, I was a different person at home than I was at school or at work. And and the further I've gotten away from that, and the closer I've gotten to just being myself in all situations, the more people can trust what's what's going to come next out of my mouth. And I think that when when people understand that, it's a lot easier to just go out and manipulate, not manipulate, but it's a lot easier to go out and just live live in the culture that you want to create because mm-hmm. I think culture is culture is a product of your behaviors. It's not a, it's not a thing that you do. It's a, it is a, it's not one particular thing you do. I think it's a sum of the behaviors that you choose to employ. Sure. And that's, that's really what, that's what we want our guys to understand. And we expect, I think if you were going to look for a defining thing about the environment that we've created is that we expect feedback to, to kind of flow up and down the organization and, and the one thing that we're very sensitive to is people who aren't willing to take or give candid feedback. That's when we notice, that's when we know that there, there needs to be a little bit more education there to let that guy know that, Hey, this is not an attack on you. This is an opportunity for us to just, to just move forward as a program and things like that. So I think the things that our guys hear, hear me say all the time is that, you know, our results are, are, are a product of your people and your process. And it's, I think our, our culture and our environment is a product of that. So when we look at it 
and, and the other thing too, I, I would even interject that ownership is a big part of what we do. We, we expect, like, I think I take as much ownership. I take it anytime I can get it. Like mm-hmm. if something is breaking down, I don't care at what level it broke down. That, that is a reflection on the, the process that we have in place. So if the process is broken down, then we, we look at there, there's a lack of one of three things. It's either a lack of education a lack of empowerment or it's a lack of accountability so you you know if you look at in in a lot of cases and we did this this fall so this is me being a little bit vulnerable here we did this this fall where we gave so much so much autonomy to our players that there wasn't enough education there so we gave them we gave them the autonomy so we empowered them right Mm -hmm. and then we were holding them accountable but the problem was it was a flawed system because we hadn't educated them enough on here are the guidelines on what it needs to look like. So then there are other situations, and I've been in this situation too, where you go out and you educate your people really well, and you empower them. Hey, hey, go do a good job with this. And then on the back end, you aren't holding them accountable. There's you're going to break that process is going to break down. So when our guys look at what our environment looks like, and they say, and they understand that our results are a product of our people and our process it's a heck of a lot easier to navigate your day. So you know where the, you know where the problem is. So if we have guys doing stuff off the field uh, that they shouldn't be doing, it's, that's not a reflection on that person as much as it's a reflection on me building an environment where they understand how important it is to do the right thing off the field. Okay. If we can't, if we can't execute a bunt defense, it's not a lack of that guy's ability to play the game. It's a lack of a, it, it's a lack of me somewhere along the way, either not educating them on how important this rep is, or putting him in a situation to to learn the things that he needs to master, or it's a, it's a breakdown of my ability to hold him accountable. Hmm. So that's where those three things. I would say at the core of it, that's really what it comes down to. Again, we're not we're not uh, we talk about championship behaviors and things like that, but mm-hmm. we're not a big. You know, I'm not going to pop off about culture that much. Uh, we just look at it as the environment that we create, and it's just the expectation that we have every day that we show up. And our last featured guest and most recent guest of the bunch is Chase Lambin, minor league hitting coach for the Texas Rangers. Yeah, that's uh, that's where the my years and years of not being all that good come into play, where I have a, a treasure trove of empathy because I do completely understand how hard this game is. I had, I had 5,000 at-bats where I was fighting for my life, every single one of them, where I felt like it was the last at-bat of my life. So I, I And I've been through the one for 38. I've I've been released. I've been demoted. I've, I've been through all that. So I think, I think sometimes all a hitter needs to hear sometimes is they're not alone. And I feel like when I was playing, like I, I felt constantly alone when I did have doubts and fears and anxieties. And I felt like I was the only one battling those. And I felt like if I did bring it up, I was just told I was a puss or I was stop your bitching, like, you know, whatever the generic old school mm-hmm. transactional type coaching comments would be. So I just, I internalized it and I went along and i dealt with it as best I could, but I feel like squaring it up and looking it in the eye was, that was what helped me the most. And I think when someone else that's been around and been through the gauntlet and gone where you want to go, looks you in the eye and says, dude, that shit's real. Like that, those anxieties and doubts and fears, like that box is a lonely place. And there's, there's, it's a real, it's a real dragon to try and slay, to come out every night and try to try to hit a baseball for a living. So you, I think just getting on the level with a player and letting them know that they're they're not alone, they never will be alone. I think kind of takes away a bit of that that doubt they have in their mind. And I think then from there you just have conversations and try to get them back to the 
you know, what's had, what's given them success, you know, we'll go back to the, the basics, if you want to call it that, like just try to get them back on their, on their path. Like as coaches, we're, we're more guardrails than we are mechanics. We're just trying to get guys down the road by kind of bumping them back in the lane they need to be in. Like we're not mm-hmm. doing, we're not working miracles. We're just guiding people towards their best self. Like that's the way I see it. Like we're, if there was at a for the NASCAR race, I'm the spotter up in the tower that has a direct line to the, the driver's ear where mm-hmm. I'm, I can see the turn two two turns ahead. Hey, go high on turn, turn four. I'm not going to take you in the, in the shop and rebuild your engine. Like we're in a freaking race right now. That's what in pro ball, like we're, you're in the fight every night. Like you can't go rebuild an engine and expect to win a race. Like you, you got to be on the track. So I think, sure. you know, it's such a different animal when you come, when you compare like people that, that run baseball academies and God bless them, they're brilliant people, but it's just such a different animal when you're training hitters in the off season in a cage versus training hitters in the fight. Like we're, we're like the battlefield medic. Well, all we have is a duffel bag and some, some, <laughs> some tape and we're, ta- we're, ta- we're taping arms back on and getting guys back out in the fight. Like they're, I love that. Like they don't have time to put them in a, throw an MRI machine and, and do all kinds of testing. And, uh, it's just, it's, um, I think the fact that I have the, that experience, I think it helps me just be real with guys, man. It's, it's hard. And sometimes I don't have the answer. There's not, sometimes there isn't an answer. Sometimes it's just part of the baseball experience is getting your teeth kicked in. Like you've got to, weather the storm like on the other side of pain is growth so sometimes pain is exactly actually what i want them to feel like I, as bad as I, I don't like them to struggle but i know that they have to because that's when they're primed to learn and grow so it's sometimes I, i'm just a, a a ear for them and a shoulder to lean on and then and then from there i, I let them feel it and we, we get to work thank you for listening to ahead of the curve You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.